and having ridden the two-way, um, two-mile segment that just opened, I can tell you it feels great. And uh, people are out in their yards. You're waving at people. You're smiling at people. You're interacting socially with other human beings in a way that you don't when you're locked inside a car. Hi, everyone. This is John Summerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about the people, places, programs, and policies that help to promote a culture of activity within our communities. It's great to have you along for the ride. Just a quick note before we dive into this next Active Towns podcast episode. It was recorded just before the COVID-19 outbreak really started to pick up steam here in the United States. Although we didn't really talk about it in the episode, it was certainly in the back of our mind that the United States could start to experience a situation similar to what we saw in China and also in Italy. So without further ado, let's dive into this conversation with Jim Wick about Move ATX. This is John with the Active Towns podcast, and I'm delighted to have with me in studio Jim Wick, lead organizer for Move ATX. And Move ATX is a coalition of community leaders, activists, and organizations that want to see a better mobility future for Austin. Jim, thank you so much for uh, joining me here. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. Jim, why don't you go ahead and dive in and explain a little bit more about what Move ATX is all about? Yeah, Move ATX is is an advocacy coalition. You know, in the advocacy world, there there are um, kind of three types of advocacy, and and there's kind of what I call front end advocacy, which is um, advocating for changes in policy, advocating for overall uh, strategies and, and tactics for different goals. Um, the second one is kind of organizing around elections and attempting to obtain resources or elect uh, officials who will push certain policies. And then the third kind, which is what Move ATX is, is, is kind of what I call back-end advocacy, which is once the, once the politicians are elected and the bonds are approved, uh, it's where the rubber hits the road, and and when a when a government um, builds an infrastructure project, there's typically a process by which they craft the project and and shape the project, and they ask the public to help them with that. And here in Austin, uh, you know, we're fortunate enough to have a very engaged electorate um, that's interested in in putting resources into uh, mobility, all types of mobility. And what Move ATX exists to do is to um, push for the most progressive uh, mobility infrastructure uh, that we can get. It's it's to support the city's work. It's to help the city uh, build the projects that will achieve the community's goals. And, and in Austin, again, we're very fortunate. We have a community that's that's made a choice to shift travel modes and, and, and mobility modes, um, trying to get people out of cars and onto transit, bikes, scooters, their own two feet, basically uh, any mode that is not driving alone in their car. And We've made that choice for a number of reasons, but but Move ATX is here to help uh, support the city in their efforts to shift modes and the way people get around and, and, and help shift attitudes about the way people get around. 
Right. And if I recall correctly, I've seen some billboards and some bus wraps. Mm-hmm. We have a, a multi-layered advertising campaign. Um, we just entered phase two. Uh, so there'll be a whole new round of of bus wraps and billboards and street banners and digital ads and web ads and web videos and other types of, you know, direct mail inserts, uh, rat mail wraps, um, ads, community sponsorships. We're getting into community sponsorships now to kind of get the word out about Move ATX and help build our brand in the community. And that's one of our one of our efforts. There are other things we're doing, too. But the advertising campaign is, you know, the way I refer to it is, you know, normalizing mobility that isn't in a car and helping people see um, what a future could be in this city if you didn't need a car to get around. You know, a lot of people, because of the way our city was built, because of the way Texas is, because of um, their attitudes about the weather, about um, their use of time, um, about, you know, moving their families around. Uh, we want people to see that, that there is a way to do it that doesn't always involve a car. And, you know, we're not trying to get everybody to ride a bike all the time. We want people who drive cars to understand that, like like myself, people who drive cars primarily, to understand that there is a place for infrastructure that serves different modes and that it actually benefits everybody, including people in cars. And, you know, for every person who's walking, every person who's cycling, every person who's scooting, every person who is on the bus, that's a person who's not in a car. And our advertising campaign is about normalizing that and getting people used to seeing the infrastructure that the city is building because it's coming. And the city is is extremely progressive. My understanding is that in 2019, Austin set the record for uh, protected and comfortable mobility lanes constructed by a municipality in the United States at more than 20 miles in one year. And uh, that's a huge achievement for the city. And the city is, is, is going to do much more than that in 2020. And, and we want to be there to support it. And we also want to be there to make sure that people understand why the city's doing it and, and what, how it benefits them. Even if they drive a Suburban and live in Williamson County and not doing that is not an option for them. But, but maybe instead of driving the Suburban to the gas station, to, to pick up a soda, you know, a mile away, maybe they'll think about getting on their bike and taking that trip a different way or even walking or, and they have to have the infrastructure to do that. Um, it's kind of a, a philosophy of if you build it, they will come. And in this case, it's if you build it, they will use it. Dispensing with the chicken and egg argument about getting people to switch modes. I think the current thinking now, and, and it's been proven out around the world, particularly in uh, cities like Seville and, and Copenhagen and Amsterdam and other other European cities, but also some United States cities, that if you if you construct this infrastructure, that people will use it. It's it's almost the induced demand model for active transportation infrastructure. Right. Yeah, exactly. And for those of you who uh, may not be familiar with the concept of induced demand, it usually is referring to um, motor vehicle lanes, especially with adding an additional motor vehicle lane like to a freeway or a highway. And, you know, very quickly that additional uh, lane on, for instance, the 405 freeway in Los Angeles was, uh, was quickly filled back up. So induced demand is the concept of you add more capacity and, and what do you get? You get more users to that area. So I've thought that as well is that here we are, we're building capacity of all ages and abilities, protected mobility lanes. And what are we going to get? 
we'll get some induced demand of more people realizing, hey, this this feels comfortable. This feels great. And you're going to see more people using it. And that's the whole point, you know, is, and, and I love the way that you phrase it is, you know, every single person that is out there walking, using transit on a scooter, riding a bike is one less car that's out there. And and it's it's not just that it's a happier person um, because because the benefits of 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 doing any of those things other than driving a car. Um, there are mental health benefits. There are physical health benefits in this country facing an obesity epidemic. And, but it's not just that, uh, it's, it's that people feel better when they're outside and they're breathing fresh air. They're seeing, they're seeing their neighborhood in ways that they didn't in their car. Um, and if they're riding transit, they have time that's given back to them in a productive way. It's, it's merging all of those modes. It's, and it's a number of reasons beyond health and beyond mental health benefits. It's also attacking climate change and in a way that drives our mode shift conversation and, and, and the realization that I think we've come to now that we don't have enough space to build car lanes for everybody. We don't have enough space to build car storage for everybody. And we've got to do things in a different way. And uh, that realization is leading to the understanding and the idea that um, we need to just dedicate a little bit just a little bit of, of the road and the space, the public space, the public right of way to these other modes and that it will benefit everybody. Yeah. And as we know, change is hard. Change is difficult. And especially when it uh, changes coming to your street, to your block, to your neighborhood, it seems to me like a big part of the Move ATX campaign is you know, putting it out there that, hey, this is kind of good for everyone. And it's not about the bike. It's not about bike lanes. It's about choice. So can you speak to that a little bit? I mean, because there's a lot of psychology involved with with that, the subtlety of, of what's being delivered. Yeah, John, it's exactly like you said. Change is hard. Human beings don't like change. Even, even in uncomfortable or bad situations, human beings would almost prefer the devil they know over the devil they don't. And, you know, so that psychology of change is, uh, it is about, you know, there, there, there is 40% of, of car users who aren't interested in using a different mode in Austin. There are 32% of people who are interested in maybe making a different choice, not for every trip, but just for some trips. And, you know, I think a really good example of what's happening right now is the two-way bikeway on Shoal Creek Boulevard, which is a landmark project for our city um, and which will shift uh, travel behavior up and down an entire eight-mile corridor in the city um, that will allow people to get from the domain to downtown on a fully protected facility, high-comfort facility. And having ridden the two-way, two-mile segment that just opened, I can tell you, it feels great. And uh, people are out in their yards, you're waving at people, you're smiling at people, you're interacting socially with other human beings in a way that you don't when you're locked inside a car, encased in a car, separated from other human beings in a car. And a lot of the, you know, a lot of the complaints about the facility as it's being constructed are that um, people think it's going to be less safe. And and one of the things that this type of infrastructure does is that it it takes a road that has a lot of wasted space and it makes the efficiency of the road for moving people, not just automobiles or storing automobiles. 
It, it makes every space of the road more efficient. And when it does that, it makes it safer. And the infrastructure, the built infrastructure, decreases vehicle speeds. You know, what happens when somebody's driving a car on a, on a 10-foot travel lane, but it feels narrower. And so when it feels narrower, the people decrease speed. And, you know, the studies out there about speed are pretty clear at 40 miles an hour in auto pedestrian collisions, nine times out of 10 or something similar to that, the pedestrian is killed. And so children's lives will be saved. Adults' lives will be saved. People will find once they get used to it. And, and this happens with every single one of these projects. It goes in. People are like, oh, man, this isn't the way it used to be. I liked it when it was wide open and I could, you know, swerve in and out of these lanes. I didn't have to pay close attention. And, you know, they start to drive on it. And then they start to maybe think about there are a lot of people riding bicycles in this two way bike lane. You know, maybe I'll try riding a bicycle. Right. Um, yeah. And and there's safe crossings for pedestrians. There's fully protected in- intersections. There's it's really a modern facility that, you know, frankly, prioritizes people doing whatever people do, whether they're walking their dog or riding their bike to the park or riding their bike to work or riding a scooter or skateboarding or doing just just out on the street, you know. Maybe they're having a conversation with their neighbor at the end of the driveway. Uh, and now they've got a buffer that protects them from the travel lane. And, and, and it takes some getting used to. But almost all these projects during construction, people, um, as, as change is occurring in front of their face, people resist it. But then six months after the facility is completed, it, it is roundly approved, even by the people who resisted it the hardest. And they start to see benefits. This infrastructure isn't a religious question. It's, it's not a subjective question. It, yeah, yeah, definitely. And sort of the herd mentality that that takes place, uh, you mentioned it earlier, is that people will see other people using it, especially if they see somebody they can identify with, someone who looks like them or maybe even somebody they know, somebody who's out there smiling and having a good time and, and maybe their kids or their grandkids are with them. And it's suddenly like, oh, well, maybe we should give this a try. There's a lot of skepticism when when something brand new is rolled out and, and brought to your neighborhood. And, and, and I understand the resistance to change. I mean, I've dealt with that my, my entire uh, 30-year career in, in, in health promotion and in disease prevention activities. It's difficult to get people to change. It's especially disconcerting for some people when literally their physical environment is starting to, to morph and to change. Um, but I love what you, how you brought that around to the fact that, yeah, when you see other people doing it, it's like that, that little niggle that that's like, you know, maybe we should give that a try. That that's, that's something that would be cool. The other thing that you mentioned, um, that we'll talk a little bit about is, you know, the sacred cow of, uh, parking. And, you know, that that concept of I deserve to have a free place to park my private property out on the public realm. It's an interesting thing we're dealing with, huh? It is. And and it comes at the intersection of land use and the way that our public spaces are designed and. And really, I'm, you know, I'm a student of history and, and really you have to look at the history and development of, of the American culture because this is primarily an American 
issue. And, and that's because automobiles and the largest automobile makers are American. We're American, developed in America, sold by Americans, tire makers, um, all of it is wrapped up in history. And, and our street design in a lot of our cities reflects that, especially in the post-war era. And so, you know, I think that that uh, idea that um, you should have parking in front of your house for whenever you need it um, on your street and that you should have a wide street that has enough room for parking. Now that, you know, migratory patterns of human beings have swung back towards, you know, we're no longer in the 70s and 80s where people are moving out of urban areas and into these suburban neighborhoods that that uh, have wide open streets and plenty of space and are built out in, you know, in Texas in cow pastures and, and things like that, where there's unlimited space. In Texas, we have unlimited space. And so that's led to a, a very irresponsible use of space. And subdivision developers build very wide roads. They waste space because it's easy and because they sell it as an amenity, you know, wide streets. Well, wide streets can be an amenity, but actually they're, they're dangerous. And they're especially dangerous for children. And they're especially dangerous when there's no infrastructure to decrease speeds. And a speed limit sign doesn't decrease speeds. Infrastructure does. And, and I think as we move into the 20, further into the 21st century and people, you know, the reason people are moving to cities and, and, and moving to urban areas and, and rural areas are shrinking, population in rural areas are shrinking all over the country is because people want to be close to cultural amenities. They want to be close to arts and theater and cuisine and also economic opportunity. And so we have a problem is that, you know, we have, I guess this would be a, this would be a Texas thing to say, but in a lot of places, we've got 10 pounds of sausage that we're trying to squeeze into a five pound tube. And that means that we need to be smarter about how we use our public spaces because every little inch of space is important. You know, in 2016, we we passed the largest mobility bond in the city of this in the history of the city, $720 million. And a lot of that was corridor work. And it wasn't adding lanes to corridors. It was taking the existing right of way and maximizing its efficiency by making sure that uh, we used every little bit. We're going to use every little bit as efficiently as possible. We're going to put sidewalks in and protected bike lanes and put in medians and pedestrian uh, crossings and pedestrian refuge islands and, and better signaling. And, and, and all of those things without adding a single travel lane is, is going to increase vehicle through, throughput by 25%. And that's because we're going to use the space more efficiently and cars are going to travel more efficiently through the space. Also, there's going to be space for everybody else who wants to use that public right of way, um, bikes, pedestrians, scooters, skateboards, wheelchairs, however you want to get around. It's going to be safer for you and it's going to be faster. And so that idea that really that 20th century idea that we have enough space to accommodate the public storage of a, of a private vehicle, I really think it's outmoded. And there are places in the country where you can go if that's important to you. But in the urban areas, it, it, it's, it is really important that we maximize the use of public space in the most efficient way so that people can get around and also that we dedicate less space to car storage, both on the street and on properties, and, and focus on making sure that people have places to live and, and not automobiles. When we talk about comfort, you and I had the good fortune to visit the Netherlands uh, last October and experience the infrastructure that is truly, truly all ages and abilities. So 
With that in mind and with this new facility in mind, because I saw you out at the, the, the ribbon cutting and the celebration of the Shoal Creek Boulevard uh, bikeway with your family. Mm-hmm. And how, how did that feel? Describe, you know, given the context of what you just felt when you were in the Netherlands, how did that feel? It felt the same. It felt like I was in Europe and it felt, I mean, I guess the word I would use is glorious. Uh, and, and I say that, I don't say that lightly because I am a guy who lives 10 and a half miles from downtown Austin. I drive my, my three-year-old to daycare every day. I pick him up and, you know, for me, the car is a, it's a big part of my life, but I don't want it to be. And, uh, neither does my wife. And we want to live a lifestyle where we're not car dependent, where, we can be in an urban environment and get around and feel safe. I, I mean, my experience in, in the Netherlands was was pretty life changing in terms of really getting a look at what my mobility future could be and how uh, how I could be so much happier doing it. You know, we, we talked a little bit about um, how people when they when people see other people using different modes. I mean, has anyone ever had a really good time sitting in traffic? Has anyone ever had a really good time, you know, driving a car uh, a lot? I mean, I like to drive. I've probably driven, ooh, I don't know, six or 700,000 miles in my life. I've driven cross country three or four times. And, and that is a little different from commuting during rush hour every day. Yeah, and exactly. um, that rush hour commute, it, it, I describe it as soul crushing. And it's basically the reason why I won't work a nine to five job because the frustration and the road rage and, and I just, I want everybody else, um, in my city and my community to be able to feel, um, what I felt, which was, which was joy. And you don't have to, you don't have to get a $2,000 bike and a, and a $500 outfit to feel the joy of just going to the park on your bike or riding to the corner store to pick up a 12 pack of beer or to go to the grocery store to grab, you know, dinner. It's very low entry uh, and it can make you feel so much better about being alive. And it's actually the exact opposite of what it feels like to drive a car for two hours every day, three hours every day. If you live far away, I mean, we have people in this community who, who have to commute an hour and a half because of affordability issues to work service jobs. And, you know, for them, I would say we, we owe it to our community to build a better future, a better mobility future. And that's what move ATX is about. Maybe if we make some choices in our city and our, our community is making those choices and we build the infrastructure that maybe that person can move closer to town. But if you have to ride on a buffered bike lane where you feel like you're going to die at any time, and I, I don't say that lightly, but that's how I felt. Yeah. So, and or even worse, just a painted line bike lane. I no mean, buffer. Yeah, no buffer. Um, just three feet. And we have safe passing ordinances and we have laws here. And we, you know, we have a culture that respects, I think, in many cases, people on bikes and people walking and people in the street. Um, but... We also, it's also Texas and we have a lot of big pickup trucks and we have a lot of people who feel that um, they own the road and that there it is for them and it's for everybody. And, and I think that's a, that kind of normalizing that infrastructure and getting people to, to kind of have an a, a epiphany moment where they realize that, you know, that public space is indeed for everybody and not just for their personal use at that time and, and respecting that. I mean, for me personally, I, I, 
you know, my behavior driving a car has changed uh, as as I see more people using different modes and as there's infrastructure that that causes me to be more careful, to pay more attention, to be more of an active participant when I'm driving a car. I mean, that's what this is about. And and also, by the way, like I said, every person who's not in a car, I mean, you know, we always joke, you know, you're not sitting in traffic, you are traffic. Yeah. And, and and for every person who's not traffic, that means I'm moving a little bit faster. And I hope to get to a place uh, eventually in the future where I don't have to be traffic, where right. I where I can be on a bike. And, and, you know, getting back to the Netherlands real quick, you know, going six days without being in an automobile. And I lived in I lived in South Korea. I lived overseas for a year and didn't have a car, but I took a lot of taxis and, and that experience, I mean, just not having to worry about a car, like getting the oil changed and getting the maintenance done and it breaks down on you and you got to put it on the credit card because you're living paycheck to paycheck. I mean, that's freeing and it's, it's empowering and it's not for everybody. And, 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 and I would never prescribe that kind of change for everybody. It's not social conditioning or engineering, but I've experienced it and I want it more because it feels good. Yeah. And and the studies show that. I mean, it's you people are happier and it feels good. And it doesn't make me resent other people who are feeling good about getting around their city in a way that's not in a car. I'm not I just want to share that with people. And it's not again, you know, I don't want people to commute on bike from Kyle, though I would admire them if they did. I mean, I know a guy who commutes from Avery or used to commute from Avery Ranch to the airport every day on a bike. That's a 26, 28 mile commute. Um, And that's, you know, that's commitment. But that's a very small portion of the population that's willing to do that. Uh, We're we're really interested in the urban core and other denser areas where people just need the infrastructure to take the step and and make the leap so that they feel safe and comfortable. Um, because that high comfort facility where you feel like you're you're not going to be hit by a car, where the car speeds are decreased, you know, I encourage everybody to go and ride a high comfort facility if they're not, or encourage their friends and neighbors to do it because it really does make a difference. Yeah, sure does. And since we know that anywhere between 30 and 40% of all of our trips here in the downtown area are within easy biking distance, it's just a matter of, like you said before, is let's get that safer, high comfort infrastructure in place so that people you know feel like they, they actually do have a choice. Sticking with the Netherlands for just one more moment, what was your biggest aha moment or your biggest takeaway? For me, I had an aha moment, but I also had a big takeaway. And it was challenging my notions of of connectivity and what that really means. You know, in Austin, we have, you know, on the council, we've had a few epic throwdowns about crash gates in neighborhoods. Um, And... On one side, you have urbanists, and on the other side, you have protectionists, I guess I should say. I don't want to use the term NIMBY because I think that's a little pejorative, and and I don't mean it in a, I don't mean protectionist in a pejorative way. I think it's more people who are defenders of the status quo because that's what that's that's their comfort level. And that's fine. Uh, and those battles often center around, you know, should this neighborhood have an additional point of connection to a different neighborhood? And what does that mean? And and. I found it fascinating that in the Netherlands, to solve the problem of of 
being choked by cars, they shut down roads, which is counterintuitive to the policies that we pursue here. You know, we we kind of pursue the policy that to increase activity, you, you increase connections and not not increase car activity, but to encourage bikes and peds and everybody. But that more connectivity is a good thing. In Utrecht, I found it fascinating that to solve the problem of the urban core being choked by automobile traffic, they built a giant parking garage under the rail station and forced everyone who wanted to go into the urban core to park their car in that garage or in a similar facility elsewhere. But they designed their road, they redesigned their roads to lead to that garage and to make a conscious choice, which which I think... You know, for people who go there, yes, you'll see a lot of people on bicycles. You'll see a lot of there, there are still people in cars. There are cars in the urban core. Um, it's just a little bit more difficult to do that. And and for me, that idea that, you know, it's 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 about a community making a choice to reclaim their public space and reclaim it for their people uh, and not for cars and that's not to say cars don't have their place. I mean, everybody would agree that the automobile is an, an extremely useful um, piece of equipment at, at various times. And some people can't live without them. But to experience a city that has prioritized other modes and has prioritized uh, moving people around in tight spaces in those historic cities uh, is really fascinating. And But how it came about, I mean, it was a 40-year process for the Netherlands and they had fights too. And, and, and that was an aha moment. You know, they had huge throwdowns about closing roads and, and ultimately sometimes they didn't um, because of the outcry, but it was a deliberate choice and it was a, it was a confluence of factors, you know, whether it was the Kindermord movement, stop Kindermord movement or the movement against urban pollution and, and smog, that's a deliberate movement, I think, that that helped change attitudes and they set their mind to it and they've spent 40 years doing it. We can do it here, too. It's not going to happen overnight. And we are doing it. Austin is doing it. And we will be a city in the future where people can come to our urban core and not have to own a car and never drive a car and get around on a bicycle or a scooter, an e-scooter, an e-bike the micro mobility and shared mobility future of our urban spaces in America is, is really fascinating. And, and, you know, for me, just being a car guy and having that be my primary mode, you know, it, it, it showed me a glimpse of, of a future for myself that I could see me living and not, you know, it's not about riding real fast on 360 or, you know, getting a, an expensive sport bike or something like that. It's just about I would I would just love to be able to get around um, without having to worry about parking a car. It's amazing how, you know, it's basically the same time in a congested urban environment. You know, uh, uh, for every Austinite, you know, we used to have free parking downtown in Austin. And when the council decided to, to meter downtown, there was a huge outcry. It, it's kind of like a thing in Austin that you you know, when parking was free. Um, but even now, people drive around for 15 minutes looking for like a coveted street spot in Austin to park downtown. And it is it is endlessly frustrating. I almost got in a fist fight when a guy stole a parking spot from me and I was irrationally angry about it. And I after that experience, I was like, God, you know, I 
nobody's fighting over a bike parking spot <laughs> and and what a freeing thing it could be to not have to worry about storing your vehicle and that's what gets back to that 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 conversation about public space and worrying about where you store your vehicle or vehicles and it's okay for people to own cars it's not this is not a crusade against cars but i i, I will say that a mobility future for myself and for a lot of Austinites where we don't have to own multiple cars, maybe we just have one. That's that's a future we want. And and it's for all the reasons I've laid out. But it's also our duty to future generations to really uh, move on from what what is a fairly unsustainable pattern of behavior and and really think about how we can uh, improve people's lives by making space for other modes of transportation. I mean, I think that's the core idea. And and we saw it in Amsterdam and Utrecht and Rotterdam. Um, and even one of my favorite things in, in Utrecht was, you know, the fact that there was a freeway that they were digging out and replacing, you know, that they had replaced a canal with the freeway, a four lane freeway. And now we're digging out the freeway and replacing it with a canal. Uh, and that to me was, Fascinating because, you know, if we have a will to change um, our infrastructure, we can do it just because there is a huge road somewhere or there's there's no road somewhere. I mean, we we have the ability to remake our spaces, our public spaces, if, if we have the will and we can't remake them in a way that will allow for every human being to drive a single occupancy vehicle. That's not possible. It's been proven. <laughs> it's been proven. And especially in Austin, where land is extremely valuable, the closer you are to downtown. And, you know, that kind of speaks to the desperation in our city, because the reason why the land closest to downtown is the most expensive is because it has the shortest traffic jam to get to work. And that's driving lack of affordability here. I mean, traffic is choking our city, it's choking our culture, and we can't accommodate it. And we can't accommodate it with more roads. Right. wider roads, right. but we can accommodate it in a different way. Which and I would even go so far as to say that one of the things that's driving the real estate prices in the, the downtown core area is the fact that it may not even be that it's the shortest amount of traffic jam. In fact, it may be the case that you can completely bypass the traffic jam because there's so much of the infrastructure network already in place in the downtown area uh, that many people are able to get to their meaningful destinations by walking, biking, and transit. Mm -hmm. And looking forward into the future gets to the point, one of the things that I was just fascinated by um, the, the trip to the Netherlands was the integration of the different modes you know, so looking at that combination of the the bike train combination, because with the the bike shed, the 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 radius that you're able to attract in to a transit station, and then you know being able to get those longer distances. So, for instance, you're you're ten miles from the downtown area. That's a long bike ride in the heat of the summer here in Central Texas. However, you had a decent short ride to a transit stop and then a, a nice efficient you know transit ride to the downtown area and then be able to either you know walk bike micro mobility to your your final destination in the downtown area wherever that is city hall or wherever i mean that's a magical combination can you speak a little bit to that 
experience as well as looking to Austin's future because I think we've got another bond in our future potentially that might be addressing some of that exact thing. Yeah, it was, you know, a lot of the plenaries and the, the, the study sessions that we had where we heard from from experts in Amsterdam and, and, and other cities there that we visited about how the, uh, the modal um, interaction was so important to the efficiency of the system and the success of the system. I found it so fascinating that it was, it's become so ingrained in a certain segment of Dutch culture that people own multiple bikes and keep them at multiple stations so that they ride their bike and park it and then ride the commuter rail and then get off the commuter rail and pick up their their other bike. And that the infrastructure allows for that kind of, I mean, you can't do that with cars. You know, you can't drive a car to the train station, get on the train and then pick up your other car <laughs> when you get off the train. and. It, it really is about ease. It's about connections. Uh, and and I really hope that, you know, in Amsterdam, they've, they've made a very conscious decision through parking facilities, you know, modern um, bicycle parking facilities. And there's not a lot of e-scooters there, but, you know, I can see how uh, e-scooters fit easily into into this model and other micromobility devices that we see popping up, you know kind of moped, mini moped type things. I mean, we've got all sorts of different things popping up here and um, there are a little, some of them are a little more high comfort than, you know, they've got seats and, you know, things like that. And that's exciting. And, and that shared mobility aspect of uh, an integrating kind of shared mobility into mass transit and public transit. Um, well, heck the, you know, the, the mass transit agency itself there had their own bike share bikes there. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I've actually heard that that might be happening here. And that all kind of ties into the next big choice for our city, which is, are we going to make a generational investment in a citywide transit system that includes light rail, that includes more bus rapid transit, that includes um, neighborhood circulators that are on demand, um, that includes uh, park and rides on the periphery of our city for suburbanites and exurbanites who commute into Austin. You know, are we going to make that generational investment, a 20 year investment, a 20 year build out in a way that could radically change the mobility future for our city and also provide the, the places for people to to take their bicycles to walk to? Um, you know, the walk shed is half a mile. The bike sheds two miles. Um, you know, we're looking at the numbers right now, in fact, to find out how many people uh, potentially could be served in that bike shed by the transit system and and how the benefit of expanding or fully building out the 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 all ages and abilities network could actually enhance transit ridership because it will. And that's been proven uh, in other cities that that have mature public transit systems. Austin doesn't, you know, in fact, we're behind um, most Texas cities, in fact, and and uh, which is which is a bad place to be for for a city that's as progressive as we are and that has people who the largest cohort of population in our city is under 35 and they you know they don't want to live in in car dependent environments um and that's primarily because they understand the the consumption of resources that requires a car dependent environment it's it's not just the ownership of the car but it's the building the infrastructure and supporting the infrastructure which is very expensive um, and it's getting more expensive every year 
And that means that the cost of living is higher, taxes are higher, um, fees are higher to, to support that infrastructure, which we have subsidized in, in the United States for the last hundred years. And, you know, it's time that, you know, we subsidize other modes and, and we are. And Austinites will get a chance to do that um, this fall. Uh, and hopefully Austinites will get a chance to fully fund our All Ages and Abilities Network, too, um, right. which I think... Uh, includes uh, urban trails and the on-street facilities as well, but actually provides a, a way for people to get around the city without a car, ever. Yeah. And just as a definition for the the, the listeners here, um, in Austin, our urban trails are the trails and pathways that are critical connectors and, and mobility facilities uh, that happen to be paved. We do have other trails, even within the urban core, that are natural surface. And so uh, different different types of trails, different types of pathways. Is there any last things that you wanted to, to mention? I, I did want to mention one thing. You just gave me, you just, you just reminded me of something, which is that in, in the Netherlands, one of the things that I noticed when I was when I was looking at their their maps and, and things like that of how to get around in their bike networks is that they don't waste uh, public space. They put connections for bicycles and pedestrians in lots of places and they design the system to make it such that it's faster to be on a bicycle than it is to drive a car. And it's not punishing car users. It's it's incentivizing makes it time competitive. It, it does. And, and that's a huge part. And so, you know, when we look at our land use future and, and, and how we build out the city, I think it's important that new development includes if there's not 30 feet for a road, but there's 10 feet, then put in a shared use path, put in an urban trail, put in a facility that allows people to connect instead of just putting up a fence. Uh, and a lot of times we just put up fences here and so and segregate developments, you know, subdivisions are segregated from each other. Um, putting those connections in is vital yeah. to to that. And, and you touched upon it earlier, too. It's it's the connectivity. It's the permeability mm-hmm. that people have with the active mobility modes. And uh, you and I both saw and rode on many, many roads, streets that were shared streets. Mm-hmm. And it, technically, they're called Fietstraats. And it, basically, a, a, a bicycle street that where the bike is has priority and the automobile drivers are welcome, uh, but they're a guest. They stay behind uh, if, if there is a, a cyclist, a person riding a bike in front of them. Any advice or suggestions or guidance that you might have for the other cities across North America that are going through the exact same thing that Austin is going through? I think it's really important to marshal political will at the policymaker level and make sure that city staff and that the implementers at the, at the staff level who are building the infrastructure, who are designing the infrastructure, who are conducting the public engagement, who are doing the hard work of shifting the the, the mobility future, um, which a lot of cities are trying to do. I think it's very important um, to focus on the, the elected officials and make sure that they are on board and get commitments from them and you know educate them. Because like I said, this isn't a religious discussion. These are objective things. There, there is some subjectivism in, 
in kind of the philosophy of of mobility, but largely um, it's been proven. The benefits have been proven. The use of space has been proven. And so there are a lot of resources out there. Um, You know, People for Bikes out of Boulder has a, a tremendous amount of resources on their website. And it's really about getting in front of elected officials and educating them. And we took some to the Netherlands and they understood and, and were changed by the experience. And so I think it's very important that policymakers and elected officials, you know, because they hear from people who are upset and they don't always hear from people who are happy. And, and you know, we know people who ride bikes are happy uh, and people who walk are happy and people who drive cars are, are upset because it's not a great experience to drive a car in rush hour in this country in any city and especially one with a booming economy like Austin. And so it's very important that policymakers are educated and and have access to the resources to make informed decisions about this type of infrastructure and understand that what the benefits are. And, you know, a lot of times it's important to focus on the benefit for people who drive cars and whether it's saving lives, uh, whether it's getting there quicker, easing congestion, addressing congestion, it's okay. It's okay to, to address congestion it's okay to, to help cars move more efficiently because ultimately uh, we've all got to move around and we can't control people's behavior, um, but we can design for it. And it's important that we educate people who drive cars um, like myself and I've been educated and I understand and I've experienced. I haven't been indoctrinated. Uh, I still drive a car. I still want to get to a place where I don't have to, but it's really important that, that people understand the benefits and, and, and the benefits to cars. Jim, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast here. And I look forward to having you back because I do believe that we've got other things that we need to talk about, especially as the, the November uh, timeframe comes closer. Thanks so much, John. Really appreciate it. Folks, I don't know about you, but I found that to be a truly fascinating conversation with Jim about Move ATX, as well as some of his personal reflections about active mobility and the realities of living in a predominantly car-dependent city, such as Austin, Texas, but also the fact that Austin is starting to transform itself because of our current situation uh, across the country and in the city of Austin as well, we're seeing an interesting and potentially concerning trend of folks staying away from public transit. However, because we're seeing a rather large decrease in people driving, we're seeing a dramatic increase of people out on our streets. I know in my neighborhood here, I'm seeing people out getting a breath of fresh air, getting some activity in by walking, biking, etc. while at the same time exercising due diligence and keeping their distance, which is what we need to do to truly address the spread of this pandemic and stay healthy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Active Towns podcast. I've got a couple more in the queue and look forward to getting those out to you. So until then, this is John signing off and wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers.